Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. We are inching towards Thanksgiving, and first of all, what? (laughs) What happened to 2021? Secondly, I want to tell you a few things that I am ridiculously grateful for right now. On November 17th, so if you are listening to this on the day that it uh, drops, first of all, thank you. Secondly, that was yesterday. November 17th is yesterday. Um, If you're listening whenever else. Uh, November 17th is... On November 17th, I celebrated three years alcohol-free. A year ago, on November 17th, I contracted COVID. And you may have seen my Instagram um, or Facebook post about this, but I don't think that there's a coincidence that these two things coincide. Also happened to coincide with the date of my first date with my ex-husband, 23 years ago? (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know what it is about this day, but it is powerful. I think that, you know, I, I have talked a lot about what sobriety has meant to me over the years and how my drinking increased after my divorce and how much I was drinking to numb the trauma and So much of the stuff that I was, I mean, I was really blind to, willfully blind to, I think, just trying so hard to not feel. About a month after I quit drinking was when the world kind of crashed in on me uh, emotionally, psychologically. (laughs) Um, And it continued to do so, you know, over the course of the next couple of years. And um, and it was important and it was what I needed and it was, it was everything. And the emotional, spiritual, psychological, and physical healing that has gone on for me in the last three years has been tremendous. About a month before I got COVID, um, and by the way, for those of you who don't know, I had a really bad really bad case of COVID. I was not hospitalized, but it was, um, there were nights that I went to sleep and was absolutely unsure about whether I would wake up. And it was, I was so sick that I wasn't even scared of that. It was just what it was. (laughs) I don't even know how else to describe it. And so a month before I was diagnosed with COVID. I was diagnosed with extreme mold poisoning, and it turned out that I had a toxic toxic mold in my house. And so I had gotten out of the house. I had had my house remediated. I was finally 
um, you know, starting to be able to breathe in my own home. And I got hit with COVID. I am quite sure that had I still been drinking and still been poisoning my body in that way as well, I may not have survived COVID. Um, but my immune system somehow rallied and pulled me through it. And I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful for this day that, you know, three years of sobriety has led me through so much and, you know, including COVID. So that is what I'm grateful for this Thanksgiving. Truly, truly, I'm grateful for sobriety. I realized the other day that um, I do, some of you may know, but I've been working out with um, my friend Michelle Dozois, um, Michelle Dozois Fitness. She used to own a gym called Breakthrough Fitness in Pasadena. And I, you know, have been going there for a bazillion years and or since since they opened it. And um, it's since closed and everything we're, do, we're still doing everything online. Every couple times a year, she runs a Michelle runs a program called Peak 10. And I've been doing Peak for probably 10 years. And this was the first Peak. We just completed it. And this is the very first Peak in three years, at least three or four years that I have been able to complete uh, because of the mold, because of the COVID because of all of it. Um, and so, oh, my gratitude cup runneth way the fuck over. feel like I'm back for the first time in many, 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 many years. So um, that is what I'm grateful for this Thanksgiving. I am also grateful to my guest today, this episode. My guest today is Dr. Akuya Boatin. And we're talking all about healthy relationships. People ask me all the time, what does a healthy relationship even fucking look like? And so Dr. Aquia is going to answer that question. We talk about exploring, we're exploring the mechanics of developing a healthy relationship with self, which is such a huge part of it. But it's also, you know, we also answer that question, right? You can't, can you love someone else until you truly love yourself? Like, is that true? Um, <laughs> because your relationship with others is also part of the process, but I'm not going to give it away. So Dr. Aquia Boatin is a sought after mental health and relationship expert with over 14 years experience in clinical practice and education, she specializes in an integ integrative approach to treating anxiety, trauma, relationship issues, and other emotional concerns. She's the founder and CEO of Boaton Psychotherapy and Consultation, where she counsels individuals and couples, as well as partners, uh, with organizations in the integration of emotionally aware practices and initiatives. She is super cool, y'all. She's really helping to grow the culture of mental health awareness. And you know me, I am on that train myself. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Aquia Boatin. Dr. Aquia Boatin, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking to us about like all the relationship juiciness stuff. Mm -hmm. 
right? Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's the bread and butter, right? It's what I do every day. And it's also what brings me the most joy. So I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So one of the things that you talk about too, is bringing you a lot of joy and happiness is women reconnecting with their intuition and their sense of self. And I want to first, why do we lose that? Mm, There are so many reasons why we lose that. And sometimes we don't even have the opportunity to develop it or cultivate it in general. I did not. It's one of those things that I learned in midlife, right? I know no clue. Yeah. Yeah. As far as losing that, we we lose our intuitive, what I call intuitive guidance because uh, of things like trauma, which scrambles our ability to really listen to what we sense led to our harm in the past. And so we might have, I mean, I'll explain that because that's really important, right? That sometimes, let's say that we were in um, a situation where we were assaulted. We may have trusted the person. We may have thought the person was safe. We may have even been connected to the person as a partner. And then this really, really big thing happened where that person I learned to trust became my enemy. And it causes you to now question what you sensed and thought was safe, what you judged as okay, right? Right. And so, and, and that's the danger of trauma in that it makes you question your own judgment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, And then indirectly your intuitive guidance gets wrapped up in that and is, is in the question as well. So we lose it because of things like trauma. We lose it because of societal norms that often tell women not to listen to their intuitive guidance. Maybe we're too hysterical, we're too emotional, or no, you don't know what you're talking about. That person actually is safe. So we're not going to listen to what you're sensing on the inside. Or, you know, mommy, daddy, I don't really, I don't want to go over that person's house. No, you need to be nice, polite, and kind. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we are taught sometimes and then we are forced sometimes to divorce ourselves from what we know to be true inside. Mm -hmm. And so healing that is a process that is um, a challenging one, but very rewarding. Yeah. And so how do we heal it when we're faced with certainly when we're still involved in relationships that confuse us? Right. Many of their listeners are in, you know, emotionally abusive marriages or unhappy marriages or all of the things, right? And so, when we're still in a in a relationship that pushes that line, that teaches us to question ourselves, right? That sort of that, that gaslighting or anything else, right? How do we start to to like? It's like we got to catch that thread, right? <laughs> Then we can start to pull it a little bit, but how do you even catch it when you're so confused? It's the anchor. I always always tell people that that intuitive guidance is your anchor. It is your guidepost. It is your truest and dearest um, guide and friend. And so being in spaces where that true voice is celebrated, is protected, Mm -hmm. is really how you begin to grow that space. So it could be a friend. 
It could be a group. It could be um, one person in your life that you always knew would protect your voice and listen to it. And spending as much time in those safe spaces so that your intuitive guidance can get louder and stronger. Right? I love that. I love that. This is what I find in my Facebook group, which we've got you know, thousands and thousands of women who are starting to tell their stories for the first time. And they do, they get that feedback. They get that like, oh my God, first of all, me too. You know, we've got women who've been in the group for years who say, you know, welcome, we've been through that and there's healing and we hear you and we believe you, right? Yes. And and like the number of women who tell their stories and women go, no, that's not okay. What you're describing right. is not okay. And they just, it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank God, because I have been believing that it is okay for so long. And I know mm-hmm. it's not. You're right. That's the anchor, right? And there's something in our brain that happens when another person can confirm our reality. It begins to grow the roots of our truth in this beautiful way that could not happen outside uh, within ourselves. We need community, we need a tribe. We need an other, right? An other to uh, support us in this growth and strengthening of our core because that's how it was cultivated. When we think about um, adolescence and early adulthood, it is the social context or the microcosm that causes the harm, that causes the misalignment of who we are. And so it is only fitting that if we are harmed in relationship, we are also healed in relationship. That's so beautiful. So once we start to cultivate that, right? Like just we get that that anchor, that thread, right? Then there's sort of the harder work, right? Of assimilating that truth and that information with the discordant, the cognitive dissonance of reality, Right. There's like an integration that has to happen. That feels to me like that's the hard work. Yes, that's the hard work, right? That's what we (laughs) call um, capital, the work, (laughs) right? In psychology, yeah, right? Because what we know and science tells us that integration is what health looks like. Mm -hmm. And so detachment and disassociation is what disease and disorder looks like. And so the work that you do is to realign yourself right? Big S, the self, (laughs) with that intuitive guidance, um, that intuition that you have. And so that that comes not only in having this external um, anchoring of your reality, but then this internal work begins. You begin to question what feels harmful. Mm. You begin to sit with and give yourself a longer time, a a longer period of time of inquiry, of exploration, of the things that typically have an outcome where you are in pain, mm. an outcome where you feel less than, mm-hmm. right? depreciated, invalidated, mm-hmm. right? And so really kind of opening up a cue of inquiry around how does this happen without shutting it down quickly, which mm-hmm. is typically what um, uh, abusive relationship will do. It will close that, close that cue open really quickly, Mm -hmm. right? You don't know what you're talking about. You you're overreacting. Stop doing that. Don't think about it. 
don't allow that internal space of recovery and repair to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that, that work looks like integrating, but it has to be that you give yourself enough time to process. Yeah. What other scenarios and other environments will not allow you to process. Right. Yes. Right. Because what the deeper you write, like, we get this anchor, we get this thread, and then the deeper we get rooted in it within ourselves, the right. more cognitive dissonance starts to, no, wait a minute, that actually isn't yes. okay, or that actually feels right. really bad, right? Correct. Where before we would have been, we wouldn't know it, or we'd push it aside, or right? So it's like actually getting to the place where we can call it as it is for ourselves. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you need time and safety and a safe space to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Everything, yes. right? So everything in the body, everything in the in the psyche naturally leans towards repair. Mm-hmm. Right? If we get cut, our body has a process of beginning the healing process and repairing that injury. So does our emotional self. If we're given the space and the safety, we lean towards repair. We lean towards uh, integration. And so the devastation now of abusive relationships is that it never allows you to recover. Right. Right. It never allows you to sit with that reality, which you believe is true in order to have a healthy questioning of that. It never allows you to do that. Right. By design. By design, right? right? That's part of the control, right? And that's why you can't heal inside, right? You can't do this work on yourself while you're still being abused because it, it'll, it'll keep shutting down the process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also, right? Like you're not safe enough to within yourself, even to be open to that exploration. Correct. Correct. Because the first order of business, right, in manipulation and abuse, the first order of business is to call into question the validity of your own voice internally. Right. Yeah. Right. And then also to not only to call into question, but to depreciate it to such a degree that you even question it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Without the presence of anyone. Right. And so when we talk about the work, it looks like, how do we begin to at least let her speak? <laughs> right. <laughs> how do we begin to just even hear the voice? Right. Without depreciating it, without calling into question, without saying, oh, I'm overreacting, without saying, oh, no, it's it was my fault without saying. Right. How do we just hear the voice? And allow it to speak mm-hmm. and for us to be able to heal. What a beautiful process. Mm-hmm. It is. It but is. It's so loving and and kind mm-hmm. to ourselves, right? And so many yeah. of us have not been very kind to ourselves or within ourselves for so long, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. never mind the outside world. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we learn that, don't we? We learn that level of self-harm and self-abandonment 
right? That 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 is how you treat the self. That's yeah. what you deserve, even mm, right? Absolutely, right. And so, so some of those messages are so they're damaging in the moment. Why are they so damaging? Because they are set in stone. Mm. Depending on the developmental stage, right? They're set into our own voice, and now we can't really recognize the critical voice of other and the critical voice of our own tone, right? And so that's really the the damage of that. And the work says, hmm, I wonder, I wonder why it's always your fault. Because if we think about, if we think about just statistically, how can it always be your fault? <laughs> right? Who who told you that? Right. And it, it requires you to begin thinking, where did I hear that? Oh, it was the messages of other plural, right? Parent, mm-hmm. partner, you know, harmful group in adolescence, whatever it was. It was the it was the other that imparted this understanding of myself that I have adopted as truth. Maybe it is no longer true, or if it was ever true. Can we adopt a new truth? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It is only if you're willing to hear hear mm-hmm. it first, right? Because this, the one of the things that I do in my programs is I do an inner guide and inner critic work, right? And this is exactly what we're talking mm-hmm. about. And mm-hmm. you know, one of the premises of the inner critic work is that we all have it. We all have it going on all the time, but until we're willing or able to turn up the volume a little bit, right? It's the tape that's running in the background all the time, (laughs) but until we're really willing to, or able to turn up the volume a little bit and hear it, we're completely powerless over it in order to discern it and differentiate Mm -hmm. from it. First, we have to hear it. Yes, yes, and need the safe space to be able to hear it, right? So there's there there are levels to it and there are layers. And our tolerance sometimes is really, really low, and that's okay. That's a starting point, right? That maybe you can hear it for 30 seconds. Okay, maybe you can hear it for a minute now. Can we can we listen to it for five minutes without shutting it down? Okay, we'll shut it down after five minutes. That's okay. Maybe we'll have more tolerance later as we keep working on it. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So lovely. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a question that you and I both get all the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what the hell does a healthy relationship even look or feel like? Mm-hmm. And I think it's actually not switching gears very much <laughs> because mm-hmm. we were just talking about developing this healthy relationship with self and yes. it's very similar, right? Yes. Yes. So, so what should, but there's like this other person who's like being nice to you all the time, right? Mm-hmm. What a concept for so many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you said that and leaned into it because it is very similar to mm-hmm. that relationship that you're able to cultivate with yourself. It is an extension and an enhancement of the relationship that you have with yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what a healthy relationship looks like. It elevates that voice 
it, it, it anchors you to the truest form of yourself. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it looks like, um, the perfect blend of, um, independence and interdependence. Right. And we know most modern, um, relationship, uh, scholars will say that a healthy relationship looks like interdependence, mm-hmm. right? right? That it is not complete dependence, right? And it's not complete autonomy and independence. There is a middle space where each person has mutuality. The relationship gives them that. The relationship also gives them the ability to rely on another, mm-hmm. right? That there is some cohesion and consistency in the communication that you have, in the the love expression that you have, even in the critique and and um, conflict that you have. That it it's not variable too much, right? There is some predictability to it. Um, and and what was that? That's just such a huge one. That just struck me, like right, the predictability. Yeah. Uh, right, which is yeah. like, um, it's consistency. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's and it allowed. <laughs> it just landed for me. I'm like, yes, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's really the predictability of the self that you are bonded and connected to, right? Of course you have spontaneity and you change things up and there's seasons to relationships and things change, but the core of the person that you're joining with, there's some predictability and cohesion there, Mm. right? Right. And there is work that's required to, um, within interdependence, right? How we, if you think about um, kind of settling into a tight space with mm-hmm. another person, there's, there needs to be some communication. Like, you know, where, where are you going to sit? Are you going to sit up? Or are you going to sit back? <laughs> right? Where, where are you going to put your leg? <laughs> Do you want right. to put your leg up here or down here? Right? So there's work to joining, mm-hmm. yet it doesn't have to look like pain and harm. Right. Right. That is not healthy being uncomfortable can still be healthy. Mm. Yeah. Right. As long as the discomfort is balanced or shared in some way. Yes. Perhaps at different times. Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. But like, you're not the one who's supposed to be uncomfortable all the time (laughs) in order to accommodate you know, his big legs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Correct. Correct. You, that is not consistent over time, but change requires, right. Uh, some level of being uncomfortable. And that's why there is a uh, distinguishing that between harm, between pain, suffering, being in pain for a long period of time is suffering. Right. So those things are really different than a healthy relationship that requires change and growth. Right. So if you're going to leave a job and go to the next one, that's uncomfortable. Right. It doesn't have to be severely painful. It can be sad. It can be um, maybe even some measure of discomfort, but it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Um, so th- there's so many, you know, pieces to a healthy relationship, 
But it, again, it looks like that. And, and the reason why I go with this intuitive piece is because a person that has been in a, a harmful relationship may have different definitions of words like communication, you know, the, the big pillars that people say relationship, you know, uh, what right. relationships look like, you right. might have a different interpretation and uh, definition for those terms, but you know what it feels like to be in pain. Yeah. It right. does not have to hurt. Mm. It that is universal. It shouldn't hurt. It shouldn't hurt. It shouldn't hurt. Right. And so that interdependence is important. That predictability, mm -hmm. right. That mm -hmm. I know who you are. That doesn't, it's not episodic or it doesn't change who you are is up and down or around, right. That there's some steadiness to that mm -hmm. and that space to grow yeah. your truest, truest self should feel at home in a healthy relationship. And heard, right? Like, oh, yes. Seen and heard. Very much so. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, what you're describing just sounds like, it sounds like safety to me. And so many of us are so unsafe, feel so unsafe in our intimate partnerships. And my God, the idea that we've sort of somehow normalized over time, right? This is what we do. We, we, it's, you know, whether it's Stockholm syndrome or whatever, right? Over time, we normalize this feeling of not feeling safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it is normal, unfortunately, right? Normal is just our experience for a long, a long period of time, right? So um, it is normal for so many people. And I find that a, a lot of people don't know what safety feels like. And so I have really adopted this way of explaining things in a way that people can get the um, texture of what it feels like, <laughs> right? So, right. Oh, yeah, I know what that feels like, right? Um, that's called safe, being safe. Right, right. Right, it's like, oh, okay. I never knew that's what safety feels like. We're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today. For over a decade, I've helped divorcing moms put their children at the center of all of their decisions. So whenever I hear about moms struggling to co-parent with an ex that abuses alcohol, I have one system in mind, Soberlink. Soberlink's alcohol monitoring system is the most convenient, reliable, and reasonable way for a parent to provide evidence that they're not drinking during parenting time. Soberlink's real-time alerts, facial recognition, and tamper detection ensure the integrity of each test so you can be confident your kids are with a sober parent. With Soberlink, judges rest assured that your child is safe, attorneys get court-admissible evidence of sobriety, and both parents have empowerment and peace of mind. Trust the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology to keep you informed and your kids safe and secure. To download the resource I created with Soberlink, Checklist for High Conflict Divorces, visit Soberlink.com slash DSG. And now back to our show. So I wonder if you see this in your practice. You know, Gen X, we're raised by boomers. Like, 
They didn't know what they were doing, right? But then you have these younger generations and you've got millennials and you certainly Gen Z who were raised by people who actually had more access to personal development or doing more work. Are you seeing this lessening at all as clients get younger or what's the, wouldn't it be great if we could go out of business? <laughs> it would, it would be great. It would be great. I mean, yes, I, know, but <laughs> no, I, I would happily do that. Um, yeah. Me too. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I think I'm biased in that people typically come to me when they are in pain. I don't necessarily see a lot of people that are, that are um, not, right. um, but I do see, see a stark difference with Gen Z. Mm. Gen Z is the pregnancy of Gen X, right? Um, so in some way, I think Gen X started this process. We did. Right? Thank you. Thank you. You're right? welcome. Correct. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> Right. <laughs> millennials. I think millennials brought that to term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I think that Gen Z is really just walking that child up, you know, to adulthood. Right. Because they are very much um, bold, honest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and loud about what needs to happen and acceptance for mental health and safety and safe spaces is pop culture now. And yeah. that is largely, right? That is largely because of that. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> it makes yes. me happy. That, and it's so bizarre. I've been doing this for 15 years. I have never seen the level of cultural dialogue about mental health that I have in the past five years. Yep. Yep. It's amazing. It's so it's amazing. amazing. I'm so excited about that. Yeah. My son's school opened up um, a mental wellness center. Just like after when they went back after COVID, they were like oh. every every one of them, they're like we've never seen a mental health crisis mm-hmm. to this of this level. But they're all coming in and asking for help, <laughs> which is like almost yeah. unheard of, right? And so they opened up a mental health um, wellness center that has like soft lighting and music, and they have a a licensed therapist uh, all the time or psychologist, somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and they have interns and stuff. I mean, it's, and this is a public school, by the way, this is, mm-hmm. you know, um, but these are also kids that were raised, many of them, not all of them. I, I, I'm aware of my privilege of being on, you know, one of the coasts where this is, you know, my son's schools, they were doing, they were doing uh, mindfulness in kindergarten, like right off the bat. Exactly. Right? Exactly. We have so much more of that now. And so these kids are growing up, like actually understanding that their feelings matter. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. To being taught to ask themselves how they feel, <laughs> check in with themselves. Like, what? <laughs> it's so true. I think it's also been a challenge, right? It's been a challenge for Gen X and Gen Z and, and um, millennials to now, um, hold the dichotomy of that, right? That in some way, we really do celebrate this. We celebrate your ability to check in with yourself and to be bold and to know yourself and to ask for what you need. And then also there's this parental dynamic where you learned how to be a parent one way and this child requires a completely different parent, right? And so I see see a lot of conflicts there, right? Like I... I want this for my child and 
at what point are there boundaries and limits to you are a child too, <laughs> right? So, right. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hard. Yes. It's very hard. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, it's, it's also completely divergent from the way that we were parented. Right? So, exactly. You know, like I definitely wanted different for my son, believe me, but I didn't really have, I didn't really have the skills. Right. <laughs> like, oh. Right. Oh my goodness. All right. So we have this trope, right? This thing that we say to people that like, you can't be in a relationship or you can't love another until you love yourself, right? Until you truly love yourself. Um, and most people are like, what, what, like, what does that mean? Like, fuck off. Right. right. And, right. but I think that we just kind of identified I think more specifically, like what the texture, as you said, like the texture of that, right? That it's not that it's not that you can't be in a relationship before you love yourself. And in many cases, I think there are a lot of people who get the external validation from an other in a relationship that helps them heal that, right? So like, is this true? Is this not true? Is this like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, yes, um, yes. Both (laughs) and so it is true that there there is a uh, self awareness that acts as a foundation for the relationship that you have, Mm -hmm. right? Why is that important? It is important because you are teaching someone that's external how to satiate and support that which is internal. They cannot see it. They cannot feel it. They need your guidance. Mm -hmm. And so your awareness and capacity to navigate your own soul allows you to really teach someone else how to do that from the surface, right? right? And so it's not that you have to have a high level mastery of who you are as a person, but there is some groundwork that creates and supports you towards a healthier bond. And then you come together with an other and, and it's, it can enhance that if it's a healthy relationship, right? Mm-hmm. It can, you can foster that. Yes. Yes. There is a, and, and every person, hopefully everybody has an awareness of this. Every person has a blind spot, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. A, health, a healthy partner helps to you in your blind spot. They help you to see something that you may not see in yourself. Kind and of. Right. And they, and they approach that blind spot with the utmost kindness and compassion and gentle because you are vulnerable there. Yes. You are vulnerable in that space. We are all vulnerable in our blind spot. Mm. How a pre, how a person treats your blind spot is a great indicator of what type of partner they would be. Oh, say it again. <laughs> right. right right because so often that's the place where we're abused exactly because it's our vulnerable exactly. Spot. exactly exactly and so there is a a trust that you can have with that person if they approach you with kindness and gentleness right when they could have used power right to really harm you that's right Right? Yeah. And they have, they have the internal, internal integrity and rigidity to not do that, even if it doesn't serve them. 
Mm. Even if in some way they lose. Right. And that's a hard thing to do. So yes, you, you need to know yourself. It would be really, really helpful to do that. It also helps in communicative exchanges because that is how we distribute messages through our communication. And how you do that is typically how we gauge the health of the relationship. So most people say, come in and say, our relation, we, we are not having a, a good, our relationship is not good right now. Mm-hmm. We're having a bad go at this, right? <laughs> and the first, the first thing they will say is a chief complaint is we do not communicate well. Right. So it may be that the actual components of the relationship are intact and okay in each person. The messages or the vehicles that you are trying to send messages across mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. broken, <laughs> right? Is broken. Right. Um, each person deeply loves each other. They want to be gentle with the other person. They want to express their desire for them the way that they've learned to do that using words and body language. It's just really, really broken. Yeah. Right. So that's important. And you have two people who are showing up to a therapeutic process to work this out. That's a really good sign. That is a very good sign. That is actually, that's a very good sign. That is not the only sign because sometimes, you know, we, of course, we need a lot of things act out (laughs) therapy, power dynamics, control, all of these things also present there pretty largely, largely too. But people wanting to work on it is a good sign. You know, so many women in my Facebook group group will dis, they will describe a therapy session in which maybe these kinds of control dynamics arise and the therapists don't see it and they don't navigate. How do you as a therapist navigate that, call it out um, as a, as a therapist in a couple's situation, your client is the relationship, right? So how are you, how do you protect the relationship? What should a therapist do in those cases? Right. When there's like right. a control happening in the, in the therapy session. What's a therapist's job in that moment? Right. So the therapist's job is to, where possible, maintain the alliance, mm-hmm. right? So we yeah. want to maintain the alliance. Why is that really important? We, we want to maintain the alliance so we can get the messages of healing through right? That's what we use. We use the alliance. So the right? alliance between you and the, and the couple, you and the yes. relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes. Everybody in the room, right? So you and the relationship, that alliance is really, really strong and powerful. And then also what you're doing in the couple's relationship, a couple's therapy uh, session is that you are bringing to the surface how these two are engaging or the way that they are engaging is bringing harm Mm. is broken is um, not serving them is not uh, a great Avenue to get to the outcome that they're asking for or goals that they want. And so you want to elevate all of those broken pieces for the couple to really decide what it is that they want to do. That is a commercial break of probably 10 weeks of therapy, but uh, (laughs) that is not a quick thing. Okay. Um, Okay. (laughs) But your job there is to bring all of those pieces to the top. One of those pieces is what you mentioned, right? That the way that one of the, the partners, the mechanism with which they use to 
get a particular outcome is through control, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Manipulation, right? And so you want to bring that to the surface. You want to really identify, depending on what orientation you're coming from, and then also what model you're using, but you want to bring to the surface where we learned this. Because there is a, and this is a part that many people don't, would not like to hear, right? There is an epicenter of brokenness in the hardest and and, and most abusive people, right? There's an epicenter of brokenness. You really, really want to get to that as soon as you can. So tr- strategically, that's what we're thinking about. The person that is being harmed, we always want to maintain a level of safety and keep the alliance. If you walked in and day, day one, I say, this person is abusive. You need to leave them. They would leave, never come back and stay together possibly. Probably. Yes, absolutely. Why is that important? Why, why would that happen? That would happen because the alliance was not there. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you really want both of them to have the understanding that you are there for their best interest, that you're going to walk them through the process. And at times they may experience or things that might, things might be revealed that are, that are uncomfortable, right? But we want to get to the outcome that you all are desiring. And if that is health, sometimes the healthiest place that you can be in is not together. And so we want to elevate that as well as the truth of what needs to happen here, what might need to happen here. And so that's an option as well. And coming to that through that kind of therapeutic process as a divorce coach, right? As someone who helps people sort of process the aftermath, right? Mm -hmm. Before they go through it, as they're going through it. I think that when you come to the decision or that, that has surfaced through a therapeutic process, the rest of it is like, it's just so much easier. And, you know, right. We can, now we can just mediate right now. We're not going to get into horrible litigation because we've, what we've surfaced is that this isn't what's best for, for us, right. For our kids in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also something that we, that you, you can use in therapy, right. What is the outcome that you desire for your children? Mm -hmm. Right. And based on the material, the raw materials that you have within your psychology, do we feel like that's possible? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's just not possible, not because we don't want it to be, right? but because based on what has happened, where we are and the tools that we have in, internally, we're just not able to do that. It's really a walking the couple through that process from, from you know, day one through to the end is really, is really the idea. There are moments, let me put this little line in there. This is really important. There are moments where there is excessive harm happening in relationships. And so there's a completely different tone to that, right? And that tone is safety is number one. We can't do work without safety. And so we need to get safe. And Mm -hmm. so there would be a different tone around recommendations, which are not as strongly given in therapy, recommendations around separation, getting safe making sure everyone in the home is safe. And then we talk about all the other things. That's first order of business. We don't do anything else until that happens. And this is part of why 
sort of the recommendation of the, you know, um, domestic uh, domestic violence hotline and stuff is that you don't go into therapy with an abuser because it's not safe, right? Because again, you're going to open up that vulnerability and they're going to bounce right in that space. Exactly. Exactly. And that is, that is how, unfortunately, th- some therapists that are maybe not, not as skilled do harm. Yes. Yep. When they seek to do things that have not been indicated by research in any degree, <laughs> right? Um, to seek to do therapy when there is active abuse happening, it is not, it, it is not, it's not going to work. Right. Mm-mm. So just lastly here, what are some of the top issues like as a, as a couples therapist, um, among other things, what are some of the top conflicts that you see in your couple's work? Mm, That's a good question. I don't know if I hear that often. I think in this season, probably in the last like five, six years, I I have a lot of conflict around the division of separation and dependence, (laughs) right? Independence, uh, um, work, duties, roles within relationships, who, who is watching the kids, who is working more, whose job do we defer to, right? <laughs> Let me guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say I <laughs> that, that historically that has been true. That men, you know, definitely there's preferential um, treatment to men is ra- around their jobs. But a lot of women are coming in that actually have higher salaries now mm-hmm. that I work with. And so there is some preference happening with women. Yeah. Good. Because when they're high earners, then there's then there's a whole other thing that happens in the relationship where he may have to pick up more of the domestic labor and then like his manhood and like <laughs> right. I imagine that's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah, that is a thing. That is a thing. Sure. Um, as far as like the anatomy of I, I work with with couples on the anatomy of their arguments, <laughs> right? We actually tease them out and disentangle them so that we can see all the pieces of the anatomy. And so oftentimes I have um, what emotionally focused therapy calls a pursuer and a withdrawer or a distancer, right? So one person, the way that they resolve conflict, if they go toward it, they want to attack it and they want to solve it and make sure that it's resolved. Another person in the relationship is the withdrawer. The way that they see that conflict is mitigated is by going internal, working it out within themselves, bringing back to the surface the answer that they have come about, right? The challenge with that is that what your partner requires is diametrically opposed to what you've learned to do with conflict. The the withdrawer does not respond well to a pursuer asking questions. Can we talk about it? Can we talk about it? No, we can't go to bed. We need to do No, stay in the room. Don't leave the room. We need to talk about it now. What do you think about this? Why are you looking like that? What's that face about, right? (laughs) They don't respond well (laughs) to all of the stimuli, um, right? Which makes them go deeper down into uh, that, that pit of withdrawal which makes the pursuer feel abandoned and sad and alone. And then obviously the opposite happens with the, um, with, with, with the withdrawal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think that's a huge one. And of course, 
you know, we're always drawn to the one, the opposite <laughs> type, right? So yes. that's the yes. problem. Therein yes. lies the problem. Dr. Yeah. Arquia, thank you so much. Any last sort of words of wisdom? I mean, I feel like you've just been so full of wisdom. I love your style of explaining these things. It's really, it's actually really beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful for what you do. There is a boundaried experience within therapy where a person is going through a divorce. And, you know, what I can do is really help them to process the material. Mm -hmm. but they really need the support outside yeah. of the room, a tribe, a community, a guide, a coach, someone that can help them to make the necessary decisions. Right. To be more directive. Like you said, in therapy, there's that boundary. You're not able to do that. Correct. I'm grateful for what you do. <laughs> I'm grateful for you and your community and the powerful, powerful tribe that you've built that just support women every day that are making life-changing, life-altering decisions, and they don't have to do that alone. And so I would say to those women, to each person that is making that type of decision right now, you get to make a decision now that's your true and future self would be proud of and happy about, but would hopefully help that part of you to be safe and whole mm. at some point. And so we make hard decisions now because there's a life for us that's waiting that is true and pure and is designed for you. So you can do this. I really believe, I believe that there are people that will do this um, as they're hearing this and after. That's so beautiful. Thank you so much. Of course. My pleasure. So tell everyone where they can find you. That's the most important part. Yes, you can reach me. All of my platforms have a Kia K Boaten on them. A-K-U-A-K-B-O-A-T-E-N-G. That's on Instagram. That's on Twitter and Facebook. And that's also my website, aquiacaveboaten.com. So reach out to me if I can support you. Awesome. And all of it linked in the show notes, as always, you guys. Dr. Quia, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.